Our scripture reading for today is going to be from Acts chapter 17. So if you would turn with me, Acts chapter 17. If you don't have a Bible, I'll be reading the passage for us, just a few verses. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 34. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Excellent singing. Love hearing the singing God's people. Acts chapter 17, as Pastor Will just read, is our text this morning. Last year, on Easter Sunday, I preached a message entitled, What If It Didn't Happen? Uh, I don't know if any of you remember that. If you did, good job. It was a message about the ramifications if we choose not to believe in the resurrection. And actually, my text for that Sunday was uh, our scripture reading for uh, this morning when we, uh, during our worship time. But this year, I want to preach a message in a little bit different wording. What if it did happen? What if the resurrection happened? And what is the ramification for us? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the power of it. We thank you for the death of your son. We also know that he did not stay in the grave. As we have sang so, through so many of the songs this morning, he, he rose again. And Lord, I pray that you help us as we go through this message that we'll understand what that means for us. Lord, if there's any in here today that are still holding on to their own way, I pray that you help them to see that the ramifications of the resurrection for those who have not given their faith to you is scary. Lord, I pray you just guide my words as I preach this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We just passed tax day. I'm sure some of you are scrambling to get your taxes in. Some of you had them in months ago because you knew you were going to get a return and you couldn't wait. Uh, there are women and men throughout our country that work for the IRS and their responsibility is to track down those of you who did not pay your taxes. There was a woman who worked for the IRS and that was her responsibility. She was to call those who hadn't paid or who hadn't uh, turned in their taxes to find out why not. On one particular occasion, she uh, was based out of Utah, but she had to get a hold of a man. In order to get a hold of this man, she had to call Anchorage, Alaska. Now, he wasn't in Anchorage. So in Anchorage, Alaska, she got a hold of a man who had a ham radio. And this man sent out a message to someone else who had a ham radio on the Aleutian Islands. Now, this man that she was tracking down was not on the Aleutian Islands. 
He was on a boat, and so someone on the Aleutian Islands had to use a radio that could reach out to the boat that was out off of the Aleutian Islands. And so finally, this woman, through various means, got a hold of this man who was on a boat and began to talk to him and discuss with him how he had not paid his taxes in quite some time and that he needed to pay his taxes. There was a long pause through all the static, through all the different uh, ways of reaching this man, and finally, this man started laughing. After laughing for a few moments, he said, Ma'am, come and get me. I believe a lot of people shrug off the judgment of God the way that that taxpayer did. That, that we suppose that someday there may be a time of day of reckoning, but it's so far away. And so they ignore it. Much of our culture views Easter Sunday as an innocent spring holiday. If you were to walk around and say to most people, what does Easter mean to you and what words pop into your head, you would hear things like Easter bunnies or chocolate or springtime or new clothing or egg hunts. And maybe those that are trying to act religious might say the resurrection or church. But very few people would make a connection between Easter Sunday and God's judgment. Easter typically has a, a positive, upbeat connotation. Judgment has a negative, depressing, unpleasant connotation. And they don't seem to go together. But I want to look at this text here. In Acts chapter 17, and what I want to see is Apostle Paul is telling us there is a connection between the resurrection and judgment. What Paul is concluding in this text that I want to preach to you today is if the resurrection is true, then judgment's coming. The message of Easter is that Jesus Christ died. The song that we just sang is a beautiful picture of that. Jesus Christ died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. And, and Paul is saying, yes, I believe Jesus is risen. And Jesus is the judge of the world. And this puts a demand on every person that's ever walked on the face of this earth. And so two simple what-if statements, or two simple if statements, then this takes place that I want to look at this morning. First of all, if the resurrection is true, then judgment is real. But really, the basis of this message, the, all of this message hinges on that first phrase, if the resurrection is true. Is the resurrection true? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did it happen? We want to look at the aspect of the truth of the resurrection. We see this passage that we read just a few moments ago. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The resurrection is the foundation of all of Christianity. It's not based on some religious speculation. 
There are proof, and I could go into great detail. There has been books written about this, but I just want to share with you three items uh, just briefly uh, that show us the, res- the, the truth of the resurrection. First of all, the empty tomb. What's interesting is in the first and second century, uh, after Christ died and rose again, the idea that the tomb was empty was not disputed by anyone, even the critics. The tomb was empty. If the tomb had not been empty, when the disciples started to preach about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all the Jewish leaders would have to do is go to the tomb, open it up, and say, look, there's a body. But they couldn't. Because it was undisputed was the fact that the, the tomb was empty. Now some have tried to explain that away. Some have said things like, well, Jesus' enemies came and stole the body. Well, they had no motive to do that. You see, because if Jesus' enemies came and stole the body, then they just gave to the, the Christians proof. So that seems unreal. One theory is that the Romans stole the body again. They would have no reason to do that. They, had not, they really didn't care what was going on in, in Jesus' religious trial. They, they really didn't want to have much to do with that. And, and if they had stolen the body, when, when the Jewish leaders were trying to discredit the resurrection, the, the Romans could have gotten a pretty penny for the body to produce it. It doesn't seem to make sense. Some have said the disciples stole the body. In fact, this was a theory that even the Jewish leaders in Matthew chapter 27 talked about. They, they said, well, the, 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 his disciples must have taken his body. That doesn't make sense. The tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers and the disciples were not fighters. We see that in the story of Peter when he tried to defend Jesus and instead of doing much harm, he just cut off an ear and Jesus healed it. And They weren't fighters. And even if somehow they would get past the soldiers, there was a massive stone in front of the tomb. They couldn't have moved it. But even beyond that, what was the mindset of the disciples? After Jesus died, they were, they were depressed, confused, fearful. They were much too scared to pull off such a brave thing like stealing a body. And if they had stolen the body, would they then go out and preach the resurrection? Even though there were threats on their own lives? No, they wouldn't have done that. In fact, the disciples themselves initially thought that someone else had taken the body. They didn't believe it right away. So we see that the truth of the resurrection is seen in the empty tomb. It's seen in the post-resurrection appearances. There are numerous appearances. We can look at the Bible and see verses that talk about this. We're not going to do that today, but there are numerous appearances of Jesus to his followers in a variety of situations over the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension to heaven. And sometimes he appeared to just one or two disciples. Sometimes he appeared to many, including a point, uh, Corinthians tells us that he appeared to 5,000 at once. Excuse me, 500 at once. Too many people to fabricate a story. 
The truth of the resurrection is seen in the empty tomb. It's seen in the appearances, but it's also seen, and I think and this is in, in the greatest proof, it's seen in the drastic change to the witnesses. Remember what I said just a few moments ago when, when Jesus Christ was taken and Jesus Christ was put on trial, where did the disciples go? The Bible tells us they scattered most of them, we don't know where they went. We see John was somewhere in the presence, at least at the time on the cross. We see Peter was there, but he was cursing that he actually knew God, that he knew Jesus. These people were scared. And yet, we see just after they, they understood the resurrection of Jesus Christ and they observed that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead, suddenly this depressed, confused, and fearful band of men suddenly were transformed into bold, committed witnesses for the glory of God. How could such thing happen? Now, Paul himself, the writer of this, or the, the speaker in this passage, was was one that was he spent his life hating the Gentiles and persecuting the church and suddenly saw the risen Savior and he was transformed into one who served God. So the Evans is easy to see that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So why do people disbelieve it? I believe that people refuse to believe in the resurrection because it has moral implications. If Jesus is risen, then Jesus is God. And if Jesus is God, then we have no right to continue rebelling against God by running our own lives. So the main issue in unbelief is not intellectual, but moral. If Jesus is risen, then I have to turn from my sins. Because one day He's going to judge the world. If the resurrection is true, and I believe it is, I believe the evidence is there, I believe the Word tells us this, if it is true, then the second part of that is the definiteness of judgment. Look, if you will, at our text, Acts chapter 17. And we're going to go through this text, but I want to start in verse 31. Look what it says there. Because he has fixed, that's he is a reference to God. It talks about that in the previous verse. Because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man uh, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, we, we just looked at this in the flip of that, and what it says in this passage is, is this, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Okay, and, and what is the importance of that in this passage is that is Jesus, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we know these other things are 100% true that they're going to happen. And what does he tell us is going to happen? He tells us there's going to be a judgment. But he gives us three certainties in this passage that I want you to see. First of all, he gives a definite day. Notice what it says in verse 31. Because he has fixed a day. We don't know when that is. We look around and we see wickedness going unpunished. We think sinners are getting away with their sins. They're allowed to do what they want. But the reality is, is there is a court date already set in heaven. God has a certain day when He will judge the world. 
And some say, well, why does God wait? Why doesn't He judge the world now? And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter, because it says, because He is patient and merciful. He is giving those who have sinned against Him an opportunity to repent. I heard a story about Mount St. Helens. Before it erupted, there were signs it was going to erupt, so they began going around and telling the people in the area, hey, it's going to erupt, you should, get, you should evacuate. And there was one particular man they went to, he had been there for his entire life, and he said, no, 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 it's good, it's not going to happen, I'm fine. And his body is buried somewhere under all of that. You know, many people make the same eternally fatal mistake when it comes to the warnings of Scripture about God's judgment in believing that it will not happen. There are many people in this world, I, I guarantee there are some people in this room who say, no, God won't judge, or it's way out in the distance, I don't have to worry about it, but there will be a day. It's interesting, if you look at this passage in verse 30, he says, the time of ignorance God has overlooked. You know what, you, right now you may be in your ignorance, thinking, hey, that day is a distant day, or, or I don't really need, believe in that day, or, or it's not going to happen, and, and here what Paul is telling us is this, is that, hey, God, God will overlook your ignorance, but only for so long. Perhaps you've been ignorant of the demands of God's absolute righteousness. You haven't been aware of your own sin. You haven't known about God's means of forgiveness. But one day that day will come. And the definiteness of the judgment is that there is a definite day, but secondly, there is a definite standard. Notice, if you will, in the text again, it says, He has fixed, God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. Um, back when uh, we had a Christian high school here, I, I was. One of my responsibilities was I taught Bible for the juniors and seniors. In fact, I had. Some of you in here were in my class, uh, and now you know you have kids and are old, and I feel old. But uh, one of the uh, thing, one of my desires in that Bible class was I wanted to teach them. I wanted them to not. I, I didn't want it to be a complicated class, but yet I wanted them to push them to work hard and to understand what we were talking about and whatever the topic was that particular year. Uh, and I remember one uh, particular time where we were about to have a test, and it was going to be a massive test, okay? And I warned them. I said, this is going to be a hard test. You're going to have to study. You're going to have to go through all this, and, and you're going to have to think about this. And uh, I gave the test, and I remember this. I gave the test, and then I graded the test, and I returned the test. And after I returned the test, three or four students came up to me, and they were like, Pastor B, can we talk? Sure. What do you want to talk about? I knew what they wanted to talk about. I graded their test. And all of them had either failed or had gone pretty close to failing. And they came to me and they said, Hey, Pastor P, I, we, we just didn't realize how hard this test was going to be. And, and, you know, and one's like, I, I had play practice. And another one's like, I, I had basketball. And another one's like, ah, I had to work. And I, I just didn't have time and all these things. And uh, it, just, it was just too much. We did our best. And I remember looking at him saying, but there's a standard. There was a standard that I asked you to rise to, and, and 
yeah, but you can't expect us to rise to the standard. Why don't you grade on a curve? I mean, no one reached your standard. Um, yeah, actually, we had a couple that got hundreds. Well, okay. You know, the problem is, is that there is a standard by which we will be judged. And many think God will grade on a curve, that only the, the scum of the earth will be judged. But, hey, I'm okay. I've done okay. I'm not a bad person. I've lived a good life. I mean, I mean I, I've been busy serving you, God. I mean, I had this and I had that. And, yeah, I knew it was coming. I knew it was going to be here. But I did everything I could. I heard a Gallup poll one time that was asked uh, how many people believed in hell. 60% uh, of Americans say they believed in hell. And then it was asked, how many of you think you are possibly going to be in hell? Of, that, uh, of the people surveyed, only 4% thought there was any chance they'd ever go to hell. See, because we all think we're good enough. We don't think we'll go to hell because we compare ourselves uh, with other people. And, and when we compare ourselves with other people, we don't stack up too bad. And that's what these students said. Well, you know, I did my best. And well, there were some people that did worse than me. God, aren't you going to grade on a curve? Unless we're horribly bad people, the judgment won't be a problem, will it, God? But you know what the standard is? Look what it says in that passage. It says to judge the world in righteousness. God's standard on that day of judgment will not be your righteousness. It will not be my righteousness. It will not be anyone on earth's righteousness. It will be the righteousness of God, which is perfection. <laughs> We're doomed. Do any of us rise to that? that? That character of God is reflected in His laws and in His commandments. And just, just think for a moment just about two of the commandments. Commandment number one is this, that thou shalt have no other gods before you. Let me ask you this question. Has there ever been a time in your life, at any point ever in your life, when you've placed anything as more important than God? Well, you know, you know, God. Well, God doesn't expect us to do that all the time. Yeah, that's His standard. Let's think about another one. The sixth commandment says, "What thou shalt not kill." He said, "I got that one down." Uh, except for the fact that Jesus, when he came to earth and was preaching on that commandment, he says, "Hey, if you've had a hateful thought in your heart, you've already committed murder in your heart. Therefore, you're guilty." Oops. We've all had that kind of thought, haven't we? Someone hurts us, someone does something to us, and our thought is, oh, I can't stand them. And so there, we just looked at two commandments, and you broke both of them. In fact, those two commandments are, are summed up when Jesus Christ was asked, what are the greatest commandments? He said, love the Lord of your God with all your heart, and, and your neighbor has yourself. And you just violated both of those. Unless you somehow satisfy the standard of God, you have much to fear on the day of judgment. 
We see that the definiteness of judgment, there's a definite day, there's a definite standard, there's a definite person. Look what he says again in verse 31. He judged the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Now, that may seem strange. Usually we think of God as the judge. We think of God being the one to judge. It's not a man. But the final judge is both God and man because it's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is eternally God. He is God through and through. Yet Jesus Christ came to earth and became man, so He is man. And so because of that, He is the judge. Look what it says in John. For the Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honored the Father. Jesus Christ is both the perfect standard for judgment. It's like that student. When the students come and say, hey, you know, no one met the standard. No, there was one who did. But even greater than that, there's one who met that standard, Jesus Christ. He never violated God. And so he is that perfect standard for judgment, but yet he is also the perfect judge because he is a deity, he is deity, he is God. He knows your thoughts, he knows your intentions, he knows everything about you. Every wrong thought you've had will be exposed and is seen to his gaze. So therefore, since the resurrection is true, judgment is a guarantee. Now what we hear a lot of times when we discuss this is someone will say this, all I ask is that God is fair. Hmm. I don't think you understand what you're saying when you say that because... (laughs) God is fair. If God is fair, then that means that you go straight to hell because you've violated His righteous standard. Not just once, many times over. Now, if you went into a court of law today in our country, even the most lenient of judges, and you went before him and, and the judge said, what is the, what is the verdict on this person? Or what is the, the, the crime against this person? And they begin listing off thousands and thousands of violations against the law. How would you uh, be able to stand up against that? You wouldn't. And you would expect a judge, in fairness, to say this person is guilty. And yet our righteous judge looks down and says, hey, every one of you is guilty, not just of one crime, not just of two, but of thousands of crimes or violations against the holy standard of God. So God's fairness, God's justice is that you deserve hell. So then you say, what do I do? How, how, do I, how do I flee the judgment of God? Can I run? No, nowhere you go. Can you hide from God? Can I, can I should I try harder? No, 
No matter how hard you try, you will never reach the standard of God. No, God has offered a remedy. That leads us to our second if statement. If judgment is real, then you must repent. Look at our text again. Look at verse 31, or excuse me, verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Obviously, that word command is a word of of great authority. It's not just a a suggestion. It's not just a helpful hint. It's something. But then he he goes on, who is he commanding? He says, all people everywhere. Uh, That's pretty clear what it means. It's pretty comprehensive. There's no one left out of that. All people everywhere. Whether you're here or whether you're in uh, California or whether, whether you're in Japan, you fall into that category of everyone everywhere. It includes those in prison today. It includes those still sleeping in their beds. It includes religious people, even decent folks who attend an Easter church service. None of us are exempt from this command. And what is the command? Repent. Now that... That word repent in the Greek is actually two words, and when you put them together, it means to change one's mind. The Bible is clear that repentance is more than just an intellectual matter. It means to turn from our sin to God. It's, it's a change of orientation. It's a change of direction. It's a change of, of not just attitude, but of, 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 of uh, the way that we are going. If I was to hop in my car this afternoon and, and get on the toll road and start heading west towards Chicago and, and I got uh, about a half hour down the road and suddenly I decided, hey, I don't want to do this anymore and I repent of my direction, that would mean I turn and, and I'd have to do it the right way, I get off the highway, all that stuff, but I, I head back in the other direction. I have repented of my desire to go to Chicago, and I have, but it's not enough to say, hey, I, oh, I don't want to go to Chicago anymore, I just shouldn't do this anymore, and we keep going down the same road. I have not repented. I have simply said I shouldn't do this. Repenting means I have, I have to stop what I'm doing and I have to have an about face. All of us, because we are sinners, we live for ourselves. We run our lives with the goal of pleasing ourselves, and even at times when we desire to please others, if we are living in, this, in our flesh, we're, we're doing it even there sometimes so that how we are perceived or looked at. To repent means that we turn from self and sin to God. Instead of thinking that our own efforts, our own ways, our own desires will get us in the right standing before God, which is pride in and of itself, we turn from our works, our, our own righteousness, to God's provision for sin. And that was through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Instead of living for ourselves, we now live to please God. Now, repentance is not separate from faith. If you notice in this passage, we'll look at it more, but in verse 30, it talks about repentance. If you look down in verse 
34, it talks about those who believed, which is the idea of faith. And I believe that, that repentance and faith are joined together. I believe you could view it this way. There are two sides of a coin. Uh, and in order to turn uh, to God for forgiveness, you must believe that what he says is true. You must believe, first of all, that you're a sinner. There's many people in this world who still are convinced that they are good people and that they have not sinned. They don't have enough faith to believe that the Bible tells us that we're all sinners. And so therefore they can't repent. You must believe that you have sinned and you must believe that Jesus Christ died for you. And you must turn if you truly believe that, if you truly believe that you are a sinner and that because of your sin you are on your way to this judgment that is going to be horrific, if you truly believe that and if you truly believe the only way that you can get out of that judgment is by faith in Jesus Christ, if you truly believe that, then you're going to repent and your life will be drastically different than it was before. You can't hold on to your sin in one hand and reach out for God's salvation in the other. It doesn't work that way. Why? Because if you are truly repenting, you're going to turn from this sin. You're gonna, you have to let go of that sin and go back the way of, that God wants you to go. Pastor John MacArthur, writing about this idea, said this, The Western church has subtly changed the thrust of the gospel. Instead of exhorting sinners to repent... Many churches in our society are, have asked the unsaved to accept Christ. That means sinners are sovereign. And they put Christ at their disposal. This modified gospel depicts conversion as a decision for Christ rather than a life-changing uh, reformation away from our sin to Christ. A.W. Tozer also comments on the same idea, and he says, the trouble is that the whole accept Christ attitude is likely to be wrong. It, it shows us that Christ is appealing to us rather than us appealing to Christ. It makes him stand hand, hat in hand awaiting our verdict on him instead of on our knees with troubled hearts awaiting his verdict on us. It may even permit us to accept Christ by an impulse of mind or emotions painlessly at no loss to our own ego or no inconvenience to our usual way of life. That is why we so want to avoid the word repent. It's easy to say, yeah, I got faith. But there's a connection here between the two <clears throat> that in order to come to Christ, there must be both. I must believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, did what he said he did. I must believe he's my only hope, and then I must turn. I must repent. The Bible is clear that there is a false kind of faith, a mere intellectual agreement. It tells us in Scripture that even the demons believe and tremble. But there's no repentance. Such faith does not save. In the early 1950s, there was a notorious gangster by the name of Nicky Cohen. And on one particular day, uh, 
excuse me, Mickey, not Nikki. Uh, Mickey uh, attended a meeting where Billy Graham was the preacher. He expressed some interest in the message, and so afterwards, uh, Dr. Graham and several others talked to him about spiritual matters. He did not accept Christ into his life, uh, but uh, later on, after a friend talked to him, he, uh, he professed to accept Christ into his life, but there was no change, no evidence of repentance. He continued to be a notorious gangster. A friend came and confronted him on this. And Cohen uh, said this, You didn't tell me that if I came to Christ, I would have to give up all that I love and do. I can't do that. That is not repentance. I must recognize that I am guilty before God's standard of absolute righteousness. I am guilty. When that day comes, when that definite day comes, and I stand before the definite standard of the holiness of, of God, and I, and I stand before the definite judge, you know what? I can't do it. I must understand that I can never earn God's forgiveness by my own works. There's not enough good I can do to get to that point. I can't help God out since I deserve His wrath because of my sin, but God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins, thus maintaining His justice and His fairness, but also enabling Him to extend a free pardon to every sinner. So I turn to God from my sins and I receive that pardon. The concept of a pardon is not something that I have done. It's something that the one who gives me the pardon has done for me. That is saving faith. Now this morning, as we wrap up in the next few minutes, how are you going to respond? In this text that we're reading, there was actually three responses, and I want to look at those. There was three responses to Paul's message about judgment and the resurrection. Look, we see verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, let's say first, some mocked. Some mocked. They didn't believe in the possibility of the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe that was possible. They didn't believe in God who alone is able to raise the dead. They, they didn't believe that. Now, there may be some in here today who maybe not verbally, maybe not uh, you're here, and so there's some level of desire to be here, but maybe in your heart you are mocking. I hope not. I urge you not to shrug off this as being something that's hard to believe, but, but grasp onto it as something that is the absolute truth from the Word of God. It says some mocked. Look what it says next. But... Others said, we will hear you again about this. The second group of people procrastinated. Hey, 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 Paul, great. That, yeah, that was insightful. That, mm, that was good. I can't wait till we talk about that again. You know what's interesting is, <clears throat> as far as we know, they never got their chance. See, Paul was uh, here was addressing a group of individuals in Athens, learned men, 
And if you notice, it says in verse uh, 33, so Paul went out from their midst. And then if you look at chapter 18, verse 1, it says Paul left Athens. So I, I don't, not saying that they couldn't have come to Christ through another means, but they did not have another discussion time with Paul. And they missed the opportunity to repent and believe. I urge you not to put off repenting and believing because you may not get another chance. It is our responsibility to heed that call. Then notice the last one there, in verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. And that is what I urge you to do today. To believe. To believe. God is holding out a pardon. He is telling you that one day, one day, this definite judge will come and you will be judged in your sin and there's nothing you can do about it. But God is saying, here is my pardon. Your time of ignorance is done. Here is my pardon. Repent. Turn from your sin. Believe in the truth that Jesus Christ died, but He's no longer dead. He is risen. He is alive. And He is my only hope and your only hope to escape the judgment of God. Don't put it off. Maybe you're here today and You've been in church many, 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 many times. But you've put it off. Please don't. Please don't. You're not doing yourself any good. You're not doing yourself any favors. You may be like that notorious gangster. Oh yeah, your crimes are not like his. But, but yet, at the same time, you're like, I don't want to give up then you don't truly believe. You don't truly believe that Jesus Christ is all you need. Again, Paul said, hey, your time of ignorance is up and God calls every person everywhere to repent and understand that He is risen. Let's pray. God, we are humbled by the fact that there is nothing we can do to obtain salvation. Lord, it's, it's a desperate thing for us. It's a scary thought for us. that it, It's our mindset, God, you know this, as, as men and as women, as people, we want to accomplish things for ourselves. And, and so many people try to accomplish their salvation by themselves, and, and, and they can't. But yet, God, it's such a humbling thing for us to, to admit we can't and to come to you. And Lord, I know there are, there are souls who are still holding on to that truth uh, or, or to the lie that they can do it. Lord, if there's any in here today that have not repented of their sin and come to you, I pray that today 
they will do that. They will put aside that fear. They will put aside the doubt and the questions and their pride, and they'll come to you. For those who are believers today, Lord, I pray that you will help us to continue to humble ourselves enough to understand, God, we cannot live our, our spiritual life after salvation without you. And help us to repent every day of our sins and turn back to you when those sins creep back into our lives. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.